First shot was a three, wide open, nobody by me, all net. I said, uh-oh, just what I've been waiting on. So from there, man, it was just shot after shot. I mean, the game was in slow motion. The basket was big, like an ocean, man. Everything I threw up a couple times, I couldn't even see the rim. I just let it fly. Welcome back to another episode of Mavs Archives, part of the Dallas Mavs Podcast Network. I'm really excited for my guest today. I'm joined by Jason the Jet Terry. Jason, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing fine. How about yourself? I'm doing really well. I'm, I'm so excited to, to talk with you about, about your time with the Mavs and, and learn, learn, just learn more about you in general. So I'm really excited we were able to do this today and uh, glad to hear you and your family are staying safe during this, uh, everything that's going on out, out in the world right now. So I'm, I'm glad you guys are doing okay. Yes, sir. Thank you. Appreciate it. Of course. So, you know, one of the f- things that I, that I like to do when I'm talking to a former Mav, one of the first things I like to ask is just ask about like how they got started playing the game of basketball um, as a youngster. So I know you grew up in Seattle, a basketball hotbed. Um, What initially attracted you to the sport growing up in the Pacific Northwest? Well, my first attraction to basketball came, you know, by watching my local hometown, Seattle Supersonics at the age of two, win the NBA championship. Uh, It was just a great time to, you know, be around uh, at a big parade all through the city um, and then when I was in first grade, uh, my PE teacher was Slick Watts, and he was a oh, wow. Seattle Sonic. And uh, yeah, and you're in PE class every day, and there was no kickball, no softball. I mean, it was all basketball. And so you had to grow to love the game or you would hate the game. But for me, uh, I found joy in it. And, uh, you know, Slick Watts was somebody who looked like me, who I could look up to, who I idolized. So, um, you know, that's, that's what grew my love. For the game. Cool. That was something I, I was not aware of. So that's that's really neat to hear. So, you know, growing up, I know you eventually went to Franklin High School, had a lot of success there, winning a couple of state championships. Uh, at the high school level, did you play against any future NBA players? Uh, you know, there, there was a couple, you know, future NBA players. I mean, one who was a good friend of mine who I played college with, Michael Dickerson. Uh, oh, yeah. He, he was probably the best high school player that I played against uh, in my time. At, at Franklin, we actually matched up twice against each other, uh, and he had phenomenal performances every time. And I, I just admired, you know, the way he went about his business. He didn't talk much, uh, but he would dominate you in every phase of the game. Uh, he was he, he was very athletic. He was physical, uh, and he could score. I mean, he had a deadly shooting touch. So uh, he he was just by far like if I had to compare him to somebody. Uh, that I played against in the pros at that particular time, you know, he was like a, because uh, uh, we had never seen anything physically like him. He was like a LeBron, like a, uh, a Zion of, of my time, uh, just just playing against him that early. Oh, wow. That's that's pretty impressive. I remember him in, in the NBA. I know he had a short career due to injuries, but I, I remember him having some early success with Houston. And then um, I know he's with the Grizzlies for a little bit too. So I'm definitely familiar with Dickerson. And then obviously with you guys uh, uh, playing together at, at Arizona, um, what was the recruiting process like that led you to Arizona? Was that by far and away your first choice or were you initially looking at other schools? Well, initially 
um, committed to the University of Washington. Uh, my mother graduated from there. My cousin was a star defensive back and uh, kick returner um, at the University of Washington. So I spent a lot of time on campus in my early years, you know, following the football program, going to every football game, you know, going, hanging around the guys, being in the locker room at an early age. And so my lifelong dream was to be a, a, a Washington Husky, you know, and play in Heck Evanson Pavilion and, you know, bring the national championship, you know, to my hometown. But um, as I went through the process, uh, my mother did not think that was the best uh, decision for me. And she actually made a personal call to Lute Olsen herself and, and told him that we want to open up our recruitment process. And uh, he said, well, just come down and take a visit and uh, we'll see how you like it. And so, you know, I was just fortunate and blessed enough that he still had a scholarship available, you know, kind of from there, the rest is history. I mean, once I stepped foot on campus and I seen, you know, not only was, you know, a guy competing against Michael Dickerson was there, but a guy I looked up to, you know, from my area was uh, Damon Stoudemire. Mm -hmm. He was there. Um, he chaperoned me on my visit. And, you know, I just remember spending the night at his house, his apartment, and watching on his couch, I sat there all night and watched the road to the Final Four. And I just envisioned myself, you know, being in that same similar situation. And then being around the program, the tradition, they had a wall of guys that played pro, Steve Kerr, Sean Elliott, uh, um, Khalid Reeves, you know, on and on, to Kenny Lofton, you know, all those names. And I, I just imagined myself being on that wall one day and then once you sat down and talked to Lute Olsen and his, his late wife, Bobby, uh, you realized that this was a, a tight-knit family, um, a very strong in tradition, you know, a program that you wanted to be a part of. And so, you know, for me, the decision became easy, you know, once I had uh, stepped foot on that campus. Yeah, that's absolutely. That's that's pretty pretty cool how you ended up there and how, how your mom played such a big factor in that. That was, that was neat to hear. So obviously you had – Incredible success there, winning the NCAA championship as a sophomore, eventually becoming Pac-10 Player of the Year. Um, is there one game from your college career that's like the game you'll never forget? Yeah, um, obviously the uh, national championship game uh, will always uh, resonate in my mind, but there was a game my senior year. Uh, Stamper was ranked number one. We are playing them at home, and you know, in the waning moments, six, seven seconds left, the ball's in my hands, and I dribbled the length of the court and hit a fadeaway jump shot on the uh, left elbow, and the crowd went crazy. <laughs> um, there was a picture in the paper with my five-year-old sister uh, in the hands of one of my teammates. The crowd rushed the court, uh, jumped on the scores table. I mean, it was just one of those moments that you will never forget, and uh, you would have thought that was the national championship game, but... Um, <laughs> Just also remembering um, the bus ride before we got off the bus for the uh, final four, Steve, Steve Kerr and Sean Elliott uh, gave a speech and both of them were in tears. And, you know, they were like, you know, we're living through you guys. Mm -hmm. we, we had an opportunity. We didn't, we didn't get it done and, you know, live every moment like it should last because, you know, you don't, you never know when this moment can happen again. And I just remember shaking, having goosebumps and, just, you know, telling my teammates, like, man, we're bringing this one home. We're never, we're not leaving Indianapolis without this trophy. Uh, it means too much to a lot of people. And, you know, just seeing Steve Kerr and Sean Elliott, that, that really motivated us. And you know, it's just one of those moments that you always 
uh, you know, have in your mind. Absolutely. That's definitely sounds like a, a special memory. So you finish your, your college career in 99 and you're getting ready for the, the 99 draft. What were your expectations heading into the draft? Well, leading up to the draft, I, I had um, 12 workouts in 14 days and 12 different cities. And so, you know, I, I really was grinding, but I was already projected to be a lottery pick. My, my job and my position was like, look, I want to face all the guys they're saying they're going to pick ahead of me. And so mm-hmm. wherever the top five point guards were, I just remember we would show up at the same um, workouts. My agent kind of strategically mapped it out. You know, a couple of times, a couple of guys didn't show up, uh, but a couple of guys, times a guy showed up, but they didn't work out with me. They wanted to work out separate. And you can kind of see how guys were positioning themselves to make sure their stock didn't drop. Uh, but my whole thing was trying to make my stock rise. And, um, you know, it was just, a, it was a good time um, because you really didn't know. You kind of had a good idea you'd be drafted, but you just didn't know where and to who. And so just leading up to that, I just remember, man, I just want to work as hard as I possibly can and, you know, let God kind of guide the ship and whatever happens, happen. Um, so um, obviously, you know, draft night was huge. I mean, I had over 25 family members in Washington, D.C. Wow. Uh, my soon-to-be wife was there as well. And just looking at the faces of my family members and, you know, just seeing how they were reacting, it was like they had gotten drafted <laughs> uh, to the NBA. And so you know, it was just a great time, you know, but being in that green room with all the other uh, draftees was, it, it was funny because you could look at each and every table and, and everybody kind of had the same, you know, feelings. I mean, you could see it. I mean, they wouldn't, they weren't saying it, but you could tell it was like, man, we don't know where we're going. I mean, they were hoping they would get picked and they would get called. I mean, it was just a lot of anxiety in, in, the, in that back room. Um, but once your name was called, you walked across the, the stage and you shook, um, the late great David Stern's hand, and that, that was just a moment that you will never forget, uh, ever, uh, in your lifetime. That sounds like a a really special moment. I'm glad you're able to enjoy it with your family. So, uh, wanted to jump into the main part of our conversation with the Mavs, but I did have one question about your time with the Hawks. Prior to your last season with the Hawks, I know you spent the first five seasons of your career there. Had some individual success not a whole lot of team success at that point in your career but prior to your last season with the Hawks you actually signed an offer sheet with the Jazz correct yes I did yeah at that point were you thinking you were going to go to Utah or were you expecting um, Atlanta to match because it just it seems like that really could have turned into a whole different thing for your career had it gone differently no I I 100% thought I was going to Utah I mean, my wife and I were looking at snowmobiles for the kids to play on. I mean, <laughs> it, it, it was a it, it was a situation where I I really had thought my time elapsed in uh, Atlanta. You know, we hadn't won. We had three coaches in four years. It was just a lot of instability there. And at that particular point in my career, I was ready to win. And Utah, obviously a a, a history program. I mean, Jerry Sloan, a great Hall of Fame coach. Uh, they had a great system. I thought I could really flourish in that system and then finally uh, realized my aspirations of getting to the playoffs and, you know, being able to compete for a championship. So um, that was just part of restricted free agency. I mean, it was a long, long summer. 
I mean, mentally it was tough. I mean, even though you could stay in the gym and work out and train, uh, it was just so much stress behind not knowing. Uh, I had several opportunities that summer as well. I mean, Miami had um, presented an offer, in, not in writing, but verbally. And there was a couple other teams, but, you know, we we're kind of holding out, waiting, you know, trying to maximize opportunity. First time being restricted free agent, you want to make the most money you could. And you also want to end up in a good situation. So it was a long summer, but, um, you know, I prayed hard and, you know, got through it. And, and Utah, you know, made a decision that, you know, they, I was going to be their guy, you know, and at that particular time, I didn't know if Atlanta would match it or not mm-hmm. uh, because they had, they had submitted an offer, but, you know, to my agents and, and my point of view, it wasn't sufficient enough and we felt we were worth more. And so, you know, they told us if you're worth more, go out and get it. And so Utah presented the offer. It was a pretty good one. Uh, but Atlanta came to the table and matched uh, that offer. Yeah, that's that's uh that's really interesting how that all how that all unfolded um i think i i've been following the nba since the mid 90s really closely so i i do remember reading that at the time and then i did some some googling to refresh my memory that you had signed a an offer sheet with the jazz so i wanted to ask you about that so i guess that leads into my next question if atlanta matched it how surprised were you to get traded to dallas a year later uh, I, I wasn't surprised at all because, you know, once they matched it, we had guaranteed that we would make the playoffs and that we would rebate, you know, a portion of the season ticket holders' money if we didn't make it. And, you know, that was kind of our undoing um, because, you know, halfway through the season, uh, we, we they fired Lyle Kruger, uh, Terry Stotts takes over, you know, we moved a couple pieces and, you know, we obviously were in a rebuild mode. Mm-hmm. And once we got to the end of the season, I was called in as they were bringing in the new coach, which turned out to be Mike Woodson. Um, he, he asked, he said, you know, do you want to be a part of this process of rebuilding? You know, we feel like we got a lot of draft picks and, you know, we're going to build it, but it's going to take a minute. You know, as far as where you're at in your career, wh- what do you, what do you want to see your future look like? And I told him, honestly, you know, I appreciate the opportunity, the transparency, but I want to be a part of a winner. I want the opportunity to compete for a championship. And, you know, part of this is because every offseason I would go to the playoffs. Like, I would drive cross country. I stopped in New Orleans. I watched, uh, you know, uh, you know, Baron Davis compete. In, in, I'm sorry, yeah, in New Orleans. I watched Baron Davis compete in the playoffs. I watched Mike Bibby uh, compete in Dallas. You know, I stayed at the Crescent Court for like a week. Oh, wow. Sacramento. Yeah, and watched, you know, just watched the playoff series. Then I even went uh, to Detroit and watched San Antonio and watched them compete. I mean, it was just – and, and when you're sitting in the stands as a fan, you're like, wow. I mean, you're busy yourself being out there on the floor, but then you think about it and you don't get that realistic opportunity to, to you know, fulfill your dream. And mm-hmm. so that offseason – the decision like listen man i'm going to a contender you know let me know when y'all get it done and they <laughs> said no problem there's three or four teams that you know that are contenders that want your services and so you know i, I was in you and uh, i was in vegas we're working out and i just remember getting a phone call and my agent said man you got to come to the hotel Something, something's going down i'm like oh man i wonder what this could be and so when i get in the room they're like look man you're getting traded to dallas I was like, wow. 
I mean, I, I couldn't believe it. Um, and just knowing that I had just left Dallas that spring uh, with Dallas was playing Sacramento, mm-hmm. and I seen Mark, Mark in the locker room, and he was just like, man, you know we pay over here, don't you? And I was just smiling, man. Because <laughs> that was my first, you know, meeting Mark. You know, I heard the great stories about how he takes care of his players, how he's, you know, fan-friendly, and he's, he's, he's passionate about the Mavs. But just our first conversation was like, man, you know, we pay over here. And it was like, wow. So, um, obviously, getting to Dallas was a dream come true. That's uh, – well, first of all, thank you for sharing so much background about that. I, I really enjoyed hearing that. Um, and, and, you know, that's really, that's really interesting. Do you think your, um, your career high of 46 points, which came against the Mavs in 2002, do you think that game played a factor in them wanting to acquire you just a couple years later? Yeah, it, it seems to be. I mean, I, I've watched kind of the history of the Mavs. And, you know, their thing a lot of the time is, it reminds me of the old saying, if you can't beat them, join them type deal. And a lot of players that have, you know, kind of torched the Mavs over the years have eventually ended up on the Mavs team. And so, you know, for me, that was an epic battle, one of my greatest moments uh, in my career, which is like going head-to-head with Dirk mm-hmm. and Steve Nash same night. Now, we didn't come away with the win, but I, I, I got my career high. And um, it's just one of those moments you'll never forget. It It was like when they asked you, you know, about the zone and being in the zone, that was an in-the-zone type moment for me in my career uh, as far as scoring the basketball, uh, especially against a team like Dallas um, that was, you know, a playoff team and, you know, had those great players, Hall of Fame players uh, on that team. I remember watching that game um, mainly because Dirk got super hot early, but you kind of you, – you matched them point for point. So that was definitely an exciting duel between you guys back in 2002. So you get to Dallas, and you already touched a little bit on your impressions of, of Mark Cuban and things you said. What was your impression of, you know, Dallas as a city and, and Don Nelson as a coach? Well, I thought from, from day one, once I stepped into the city, it was, it was warm welcome. Um, you realize that, you know, it was a football town, but the Mavs were heating up uh, because of the excitement and the energy and the passion that Mark Cuban had brought uh, to the to the city and to the organization and to the fan base. Um, so it was a great time to be kind of a part of it. Um, they hadn't quite gotten over the hurdle of, you know, beating San Antonio, their rival. Houston was their rivalry. And, you know, that a part of basketball I missed. I hadn't felt that part of basketball since college. And so, you know, just being around the town and being in the community, um, you know, I was always actively involved in whatever community I was a part of in Atlanta and Arizona and in Dallas. So I spent a lot of time in South Dallas. I had a high school teammate that played at Lincoln High School under Coach Bishop. And so I held a, a basketball camp there that summer. And, you know, just getting involved in the community, being a part of, you know, the whole um, Dallas landscape, uh, it came natural to me, but it was only because the fans welcomed me as one of their own. Yeah, that was a, a special time, um, really in Mavs history. You know, they had turned the corner earlier in the early 2000s, and, you know, by the mid-2000s, they had really cemented themselves as a legitimate contender. So I'm sure that was a exciting time for you. And one thing about your first season, well, a couple things, actually. So... Uh, in March of that season, Don Nelson stepped down and, and Avery jumped in as coach. Was that something that caught the players off guard? I know Avery was being groomed, essentially, but was that 
something that caught you off guard to happen during the season? Well, that was one of the craziest moments I've ever been a part of uh, in, in basketball because, again, you're playing with, uh, with for a Hall of Fame coach. Um, yes, he was grooming Avery. Avery was a player coach, and, you know, he was one of my, my greatest mentors. Uh, but just, you know, the, the way Don Nelson coached basketball was just different. Uh, one, he had a connectivity to the players, and he had their ultimate respect because of his career and what he had accomplished, not only as a player but as a coach as well. Um, two is because it, his approach. I mean, his approach was, if you can't help me offensively, you can't play. And that was just different um, because all the coaches I had played for uh, previously always preached defense and, you know, you, you got to be able to guard your man, guard your yard type deal. And, you know, I don't care about how many points you score, but the defense is, you know, where we hang our hat. And his approach was totally different. Uh, his approach was about matchups and, and being able to outscore your opponent. And, and if you had that skill set, you know, those were the guys that were going to play. And so I loved it. I mean, I, I loved playing for Don Nelson, but, you know, there would be times where he would come into practice, man, cowboy boots on or golf shoes on, have his dog with him and be like, if somebody hits this shot from half court, we're out. They're like, what? <laughs> well, you're talking to a guy that used to have two and three hour practices, especially coming out of losing situation in Atlanta. And now I'm in Dallas where, it's a veteran team, and the coach is like, hey, man, somebody hit this half-court shot. I mean, guys would literally get a whole ball rack trying to hit that shot so we can get out of there. And You know, he kept it light. He kept it fun. He made basketball for me fun again. Um, but to speak to your question, um, I mean, I think we were at a gala um, for a Mavs Foundation event, and we were hearing whispers like, you know, Coach Nelson might step down. We don't know what's going to happen. And then the next day we come in for shoot around and it's like, okay, guys, practice is over. Let's bring it in. And everybody brings it in. We're going to say one, two, three mass. And before we got to go one, he was like, uh, I just want to tell y'all something. It's Avery's team now. And then he just walked off and we're like, oh, shit. Okay, I guess it is. And then we just one, two, three mass and we're out. But it was just a, a crazy silence. And then from there, man, we just, we just took off. I mean, we almost were playing, you know, for Nelson because of the way he went out. And then we were playing for Avery, too, because we knew how good of a coach he he was going to be and that he would always put us in the position to be successful. But uh, it was just a crazy, crazy time for us right there because it was like, what? It's Avery's team. Oh, okay, I guess it is. And then we just, you know, we kind of rolled from there. Yeah, I remember being surprised by that as a fan when, when the announcement came out. But, you know, you guys did go on a roll once Avery took over, ended the season on a really high note, and then faced Houston in the playoffs, went down 0-2 at home, and then the series shifts to Houston. And I'm convinced that Mav- like, you guys don't win that series, if not for your play specifically, throughout that series, but mainly those next two games in Houston. What do you remember from – from the, those uh, those Houston games where you guys were able to tie the game or tie the series up 2-2 with eat the road team winning every time? Well, there's so many monumental marks, probably like three or four in my career as a Mav, um, and, and that was one of them. Again, you got to remember, that was my first playoffs. Like, that was yes. my first time being in the postseason, and, you know, expectations were high. And this is not like college. This is not like the high school state tournament. Um, but th- this was a whole nother level and people would tell me about it. And I have 
sat in the stands and I watched it, but there was just a whole nother energy level, a whole nother expectation, um, a whole nother level of focus, of level of play you had to get to. And for me, I remember I remember the first, you know, two, three games I kind of struggled. Um, you know, I don't know if it was the pressure or, or was it the expectations. Uh, it definitely was the opponent because Bob Sur I had played with the season before in Atlanta. And so he kind of knew my moves. He knew kind of what I wanted to get done out on the floor. And, you know, he had me studied. And I had, you know, I scored some points, but I had a lot of turnovers early. And, and I think a lot of that had to do with me trying not to make mistakes, trying to be perfect and, and not wanting to mess up and disappoint my teammates. Um, but there was a film session uh, in game three, um, right before game three, we're in Houston and coach Avery or one of the film guys puts on a, a Roy Jones greatest hits. And we're watching this video. Like there's nothing to do with X's and O's, how we're going to double Yao Ming, how when Tracy McGrady comes off the pick and roll, how we're going to defend that. There was none of that. This was go out and knock. I don't even want to curse, but knock their butt out. <laughs> go out, go out fighting, go out swinging. If you're going to go out, this is how we got to go out. And we knew if we lost game three, the series was over. We had already lost two at home. You're on the road. You're down 0-2. You lose the third game. Nobody's ever come back from 0-3. I think only one other team in history had. So we knew what we were up against. And literally, when that video went off, I'm telling you, we were ready to put – it didn't matter who we were facing that night. We knew we were going to win the game. I mean, it was just that type of impact that that, that motivational uh, video had on us. And I know every guy in that locker room could, could speak to that. Um, so we go out. I, I think I had a pretty decent game. Um, and then from there, my confidence was sky high. You know, once I tasted a little bit of success, that's all it took. And once I knew there, you know, I could make mistakes and – you know, it wasn't the end of the world type deal. I mean, I didn't cost us the series. Then, you know, I was able to go out and play free. And, you know, there really was nothing they could do to kind of stop me. They they played a funky matchup on Josh Howard as well. I mean, he was a young player uh, just coming into his own, getting confidence. But they put Yao Ming on him. And that kind of threw us out of whack. We'd never seen their center guarding like our second or third best player. Like, that was that was odd to us. And it took a while to get adjusted to. But once we figured that out um, and we just knew we had to fight and scrap, I mean, the series pretty much, you know, shifted. The momentum shifted uh, into our favor. Absolutely it did. You know, you guys won the next three, went up 3-2, ended up winning by 40 points in game seven. Probably, I would assume that has to be the biggest game seven victory of all time. But I'm pretty confident saying that, but I'm not 100% sure. And, you know, then you moved on to the Phoenix series. Uh, that was all about Dirk and Nash. You know, what, what are your memories from, from that series? Uh, you know, you were essentially, you were the, basically the, the main point guard acquisition, well, you and Devin Harris after Nash had left. So what do you remember about the, uh, the team's mentality and just the, the environment of that series? Well, I just knew, you know, coming out of that first series, I, I knew I was battle tested. I knew I was ready. But um, for me, I mean, like you said, it was supposed to be about Dirk and Nash, and I think the biggest mistake I made is I made it it was about me and Nash because you got to remember um, Nash departed and I was brought in, so my whole mindset mentality was, oh, I'm here to replace him. 
you know, I got to be just as good or even better uh, than what he was. And so now we're facing him in the playoffs. And I'm thinking everybody's looking directly at that matchup when in hindsight they were really more about Dirk and Nash because of their relationship and what they had accomplished and how that whole thing was broken up. And I knew it was weighing on him mentally. Uh, but for me, I knew I had put a lot of pressure on myself because I wanted to succeed and I wanted to uh, outduel and, and want to prove the Mav fans right. You know, wanted to prove Donnie Nelson and, and Cuban right that, you know, okay, you let Nash go, but, you know, here's Jason Terry. I'm here. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, just as good. And so um, there was a lot of pressure, but Nash played unbelievable. I mean, he played phenomenal. He had a good supporting cast around him. And, you know, he proved to everybody why he was the MVP at that particular time. I mean, everything he did, he literally controlled that entire series. And he, he, he showed his greatness uh, in that series. And we just weren't good enough uh, yet. But I will say it was a part of what, had, what molded, I know, me and motivated Dirk uh, in our careers, uh, especially going into that next season, uh, losing that game. Because it, it definitely was a winnable series. I mean, I wouldn't say they just wiped us out, but uh, Nash was unstoppable. And then the shot that he hit over me uh, to tie the game and send it to overtime was really the turning point in that series, uh, and we never recovered from that. Um, so I think that was in game four. Might have been game four or five. It might have been game five at home uh, when he hit that shot over me uh, and sent it to overtime. And then we, I mean, we really went cold in overtime, and we never could recover. Yes, I, I remember that shot. And, uh, yeah, I was confident that, uh, you know, maybe had that game gone the other way, you know, things could have been possibly turned out different. But like you said, you guys had a better learn, learn from that experience going into the next season. So obviously wanted to talk about 2006. But um, one thing I did want to talk about 2006 before talking about the finals is a little bit is just oh, that Spurs series the next season was unbelievable. In my opinion, probably the most fun I've had watching just a, a seven-game series as a fan, how each game went down to maybe five or five of the games went down to the final 10 seconds or so. What, what do you remember from that series? Well, it was the most competitive time uh, in, in my career for me. Uh, one, because I was just gaining the confidence that I could play the point guard position. And two, uh, it was like, Avery all once Avery took over, his whole thing was we have to beat San Antonio. We're going to emulate what they do uh, because it's a, a model of success. But then we are going to take what they do. We're going to enhance it and we're going to beat them at their game. And so, you know, our whole mindset was you got to beat San Antonio. They're the champion. They're big brother. Uh, they're our rivals. There was two teams that you knew when you put that Maverick jersey on that you had to be up for. It didn't matter if it was preseason, regular season, or postseason. Houston Rockets and the San Antonio Spurs. Like, those were intense games. Those were the rivalries. You know, I don't want to compare it to, to Lakers-Celtics, but if I had something to compare it to in my era when I was playing, the San Antonio Spurs-Dallas Mavericks rivalry was intense and it was fierce. So going into that series, we already knew. You know, they were the champions. We knew the road to the championship. You had to obviously go through the champion. And to get it done, we had to beat San Antonio. And I think right out the gate, I mean, it was, it was, it was locked down. I mean, it was focused. You didn't talk to your relatives. You didn't fill out ticket requests. 
it was none of that going on. It was straight up focused 20, I'll say 24 hours out of the day. And we knew them up and down. They knew us up and down. And we were going to fight, uh, you know, to the end. And that's what it ended up being. It was a seven-game duel. And to me, game four was, was probably the moment where we had got the confidence like, oh, yeah, we could beat this team. Like, we, we may go ahead and beat this team because we went to overtime. Uh, it was a tough game. You know, I hit some big shots. I remember the biggest shot I remember was on the baseline in front of our bench. I had Tim Duncan ISO one-on-one. I did about 100 moves, it seems like, um, and the clock was winding down. And then I finally seen the basket. I got space, and I let it fly, and it, it seemed like it took, you know, hours for that ball to drop out the sky, and it, it went in, and you could – you could not hear a thing. The crowd erupted, and uh, you know we win game four. I, I did a foolish thing in game five because we really could have ended them in game five, uh, game six if if we get out of game five. And I, I'm not suspended for game six uh, at home. I don't. I, I think we win the series in six games. But uh, obviously, you know, game five was a crazy series. I have the scuffle there with. Uh, Michael Finley in a loose ball scrum and kind of just blacked out for a second. And, and um, you know, I did something that I, you know, one of my most regrettable moments mm-hmm. uh, in my career. It could have cost us, you know, the series. Uh, but unfortunately it didn't. We get to game seven. And game seven, man, I'm telling you right now, game seven was another in the zone moment for me uh, because, you know, we came out as a team and we all were hot. But uh, me personally, I had one of the best halves of my career. Uh, and then they come back in the third quarter and they go on a run like we knew they would. You know, they're the champion. They're not just going to let us knock them out. But they came back from a 20-point deficit, and then it gets tight. Uh, we have the lead, you know, with about, I don't remember, maybe about 30 seconds or something left in the game. And, you know, we're supposed to be double-teaming Tim Duncan. Ginobili throws it in. I'm guarding him. I, I fake like I'm a double and try to get back. Tim kicked it out, and he and Ginobili just drilled the three. Mm-hmm. And he could literally just feel the heart just ripped out of, like, you know, I looked at Cuban, I looked at Avery, and they were just so disappointed because we had him, you know, and then G let Ginobili hit a shot, and it was me that was guarding or supposed to be guarding, and he hit it over me. So they call, we call timeout, we're disappointed. But you know, what gave me a common moment, I kind of looked at Dirk, and Dirk was just stone-faced. Like, he was stone-faced, and if I had a bubble over his head, it read, don't worry about nothing. We, we still got time left on the clock. We're going to find a way. And and Dirk, we run the play for Dirk. He pops out. He rips through, drives to the basket, and Ginobili, like, goes and tries to block it. I'm sitting there looking like, oh, my God, that's an and one. We already know if he gets in line, he's making a free throw, but – so now we tie the game up, and they get a chance to win it, and, and they miss the ball flies around, and we're like, oh, no. They they gave us another life. We're going to finish this thing off in overtime. And that overtime period, I mean, they, it wasn't even close. I mean, we just took control of the game. Stack hit a couple big shots. I think I might have hit a big shot. And it was, it was lights out, man. But that was, like, one of the most satisfying victories uh, in a series that I've ever had as a man. Oh, definitely. As a fan, it was uh, so exciting, and I remember being so happy watching the game at a friend's house that uh, that the team and you guys had, had finally beaten the Spurs and were advancing and all that. Now, moving on to the finals, and I know enough has been said about the finals and probably will continue to be said about the fi- that, that particular series. 
you know, you individ- individually, you had some great success, especially in game one. Just, you know, what, what are your memories from that game? Because in my head, that's probably a top three Jason Terry Mavs game for me, game one of 06. Well, well game one for me was, yeah, I mean, obviously, you got to think about our road to the championship. You beat the Spurs, your biggest rival. You avenge your playoff defeat against Steve Nash and the Phoenix Suns before that. So we're in our mind, we're like, man, this is destiny. I mean, we're the team. We're destined to win. Nobody picked us. You know, Miami's a great team. They got like four or five Hall of Famers over there with a Hall of Fame coach. Uh, but in our mind, we had nothing to lose. And so I can just remember um, the shoot around before the game one. I'm out on the court. Nobody's in the gym. I just finished my workout. And I just went and sat in the stands. And I visualized every play that I run, every shot that I take. and I made every bucket, and it was like I was visualizing the game. I was mentally locking into what I had to do out there in that game, in game one, and it was my first finals experience. But what I did was I leaned on my first playoff experience the year before. Mm-hmm. I told myself, no fear and failure. I'm going to let it all hang out. I don't care if I turn the ball over. I don't care if I miss shots. I'm going to play to exhaustion. And – once I got out there, I think my first shot I made was a three. Boom, in front of the bench. Now, for me as a shooter, the, the best thing you can do in the game, you give me an open look and it goes down, I mean, it's going to be a long night for you. I've never played in a game where I've got the first shot and it's been uh, like all net and then I hadn't had a good game. So that was a good start for me. Um, possession happens. I slip, I fall, I get back up, I drive the lane, I dunk on you, Donis Haslam. And and then it was like, oh, this is too easy. And then from there, I think every play we'd run, if we ran an action for me, I mean, we either got a shot or we got a, a bucket that was assisted. So, you know, the game was just going. It was a flow. It was a rhythm. Um, even though there was a lot of hype, there was a lot of expectation, uh, there was a lot of pressure on Miami um, because they had Shaq, because they had Alonzo Mourne and Gary Payton. You know, D-Wade D- was just becoming into his own as a star you know, making a name for himself, but all the pressure was on those other guys because they had gotten to the finals multiple times with different teams, and they they were expected to win. They We were the inferior team to that team. They had the more talent, uh, man, man for man. And so, you know, for me in game one, it was just like, man, we're going to let you know, like, this, this, this ain't going to be the series you think it's going to be. We're, we're here to play, and we win that game. Then game two comes. And it's the same thing. And so now you're thinking in your head, you're like, oh, my goodness. We're <laughs> going to win the NBA championship. Like, this this can't be this easy. And and to turn out, it wasn't as easy as we thought it was going to be. And being up 2-0 was kind of like fool's goal. Um, because, you know, though we had played, you know, pretty good, you know, they hadn't played their best. And uh, you knew they had champions over there in that locker room, and you knew they weren't going to quit. Um, but we had them. I mean, we had in game three. I mean, I can I can remember we're up eight or nine points with three three four minutes left in the game, and you couldn't you couldn't tell me or anybody in my family or any mad fan that you know this wasn't going to be our time to hang up that banner, and you know in that last three minutes, I mean everything that could go wrong did go wrong, and um, I just remember remember just like. After you lost that game, it was like you got lost the series, but it shouldn't have been. But a young, inexperienced team that hadn't been through that type of adversity wouldn't have that mindset, you know, that, okay, there's another game. 
So going into game four, we were still carrying game three, the fact that we let an opportunity slip away. Now you lose game four, Stackhouse gets suspended, and now you lose your sixth man, your second or third leading scorer. There's more adversity. Now the pressure has shifted from Miami, a team with all the expectation, all the famers that had all the pressure on them against a team that shouldn't even be in the finals, right? Now the pressure shifts like you guys were up 2-0. Now it's 2-2. You're still in Miami. You've been in Miami now eight or nine days. Like that is a long time to be away from home, a young team that's never been in the finals, don't know how to respond to adversity. Like there was just so much pressure that has shifted on the weights of us, our shoulders that we did not know how to react and respond. But for somehow every mastered up a, a masterful speech, uh, we actually moved off of South Beach. We switched hotels, moved up to Fort Lauderdale, had roommates, something that we had never did, and it got our focus back. Who was your roommate, if you don't mind me asking? My, oh, no, no problem. My roommate was, uh, was Eric Dampier, and all he okay. did was sleep. So I think the one that affected most was uh, – was Dirk. His roommate was Black College, Daryl Armstrong. We used to call him Black College. And he said all they did was listen to rap music and, and watch videos all day. And so Dirk was like, man, I couldn't get no sleep, man. I, he didn't like it. Uh, but I thought, it, I thought it, it was a masterful job by everybody regaining our focus and getting us back into the series. And so in game five, I actually had a shot to win it. Um, and I, I, I just missed. I mean, it was one of those shots that you dream about. And that shot, I hit that shot there. We go up 3-2. I think we win the series. Um, but it didn't happen. Um, we we're like, okay, we got two games now, game six and seven at home. And our mindset was, we got two games at home. What better thing to be than two games at home? But all the pressure again, we didn't realize it, but it all shifted towards us to be one of the teams to let a team come back from being down 0-2 and in the finals. Is, I mean, it was just – it was just too much pressure to overcome, and you know, you know, they beat us in a tough game in Game Six. It started out good, uh, but we just didn't have enough energy to muster up, uh, you know, what what we had opened up that can. I mean, we opened up a can of confidence that we, we couldn't overcome, and they, you know, the last moment for me in that whole series was the confetti on our home court hitting us in the head, and having to walk to that locker room, you know, know that you disappointed a lot of people. And, and yourself and uh, just being in that locker room. I mean, you could hear, you know, people cursing, you know, other people were crying. I mean, it was just a sad, sad locker room. And then, you know, that summer was just long, man. It was just a long summer for us, um, you know, coming that close uh, to realizing your ultimate goal and then not, not happening. Definitely. Yeah. That was disappointing um, from a, from a fan perspective. And then, you know, the next couple years, obviously there was the Golden State series and then the Hornet series, so two consecutive first round exits. Avery's replaced with Rick Carlisle. And in that first season under under Carlisle, you had one of your probably your best individual season, um, arguably of your career from a scoring standpoint. What what did Carlisle do for you from uh just from a X's and O's perspective uh, that enabled you to uh, to thrive and eventually win Sixth Man of the Year that year. Well, I think, I think Carlisle's biggest attribute for me is uh, one that he's going to always have his teams prepared um, for for any situation. Two, he gets you to buy into your role. 
And I think our, our conversation we had was, well, how can the Mavs, not you, but how can the Mavs be most effective? You know, how can we utilize your best skill set and make us the best team we can be? And, you know, for him it was, man, we're going to use you like Reggie Miller, but we're going to do it off the bench. But when you come in, we're going to run the offense through you. It's going to be for you to make plays and, and make shots. And so once he gave me that responsibility, um, I, I, I thought it was huge. And, and I thought it was a huge responsibility. I thought it was it was big for him to come out and, you know, present his case to me uh, and then me buy into it. And I thought it was easy for me to do because I did it in college. You know, being a six-man, coming off the bench, uh, that wasn't a problem for me. So um, it, it was a role I thrived in. And, you know, I, I definitely – I definitely applauded him and looked up to him for that. And then I watched how he worked. I mean, he was a, a mastermind. I mean, if you if you went into one of his offices and you seen them, his chalkboard, he would have lineups for two weeks at a time already set, you know, how he would match up. Then he would have his play sheet on the right side. I mean, you could just tell he put a lot of time and effort into um, what he was trying to get accomplished. And so when you see a guy like that, you know, you can only believe and buy into what, what he's selling. He obviously seemed like the right coach for the Mavs at that time for you personally. And, you know, that was a, that was pretty, that, that was a, a fun season. I know you had a couple of buzzer beaters that season. Um, I think Minnesota and Philadelphia kind of very similar shots actually, from what I remember. So that, that was pretty cool watching that happen. Um, jumping ahead to 2011, 2010, 2011 championship season, what inspired you to get the the tattoo and on your on your bicep of the championship trophy? And how quickly from you know when you decided you were going to do that, did you actually do it? Well, the the year the the year before we lose to San Antonio yes. in the first round, yeah. and for me it was like, okay, what what do we need? What are we missing? And I could just remember going back to the New Orleans Pelicans series and remember how Tyson Chandler played and the impact he had on that team and how close they came to almost making it to the finals. And, you know, just watching his energy, how he played, how he controlled the floor, but he was a center, how he ran the floor, how athletic he was, how he would compliment Dirk. And so once we acquired Tyson Chandler and we already had gotten Karan Butler the year before, we had Deshaun mm-hmm. Stevens, so we had our toughness. I mean, we were starting to get the pieces. I mean, we had Jason Kidd. He was more comfortable now. Uh, he was starting to understand where guys wanted the ball and how they needed to be operate, where Dirk liked it, where I liked it. And so, you know, the pieces were coming together. Then Sean Marion as well. I mean, so now you had multiple pieces that you knew, like, this is a championship contending team. So in preseason early, I'm like, man, we got it, man. We got it at every position. We're deep. We have – we have, you know, one through 10, one through 12. I mean, we got guys that can contribute at a high level and that have experience. You know, this wasn't a young team whatsoever. I think we may have two rookies um, on the, on that team, uh, if that. Um, so uh, it, it was it was a situation where I was like, man, there's there's something special here, fellas. And we were already spending a lot of time together. We Everybody came in early in September to work out. Then we get to preseason. Uh, we're all at Deshaun Stevenson's house. And, uh, you know, we're eating, we're talking about the season, and then we hear a, a, door, a knock on the door. It's Deshaun's tattoo artist. Now, if anybody knows Deshaun, he has tattoos all over <laughs> him, face, chest, neck, everywhere. 
And so he's like, nah, man, I just, it's a gift from me to the guys, man. If anybody want to get tatted up, um, you know, tell him what you want. He can draw it up quick and, uh, you know, it's on me. You don't have to pay him anything. And I'm like, you know, I'm a tattoo guy myself. I had over 18, 19 tattoos at the time. So I was like, you know what? You know, all this talk about championship, you know, I'm, I'm going to show y'all, man. I believe. I mean, I don't know if anybody in here does, but I do. And I, this is me talking in my head. But I went in there. I didn't let anybody see me. I had him Google the Larry O'Brien trophy. So he Googles the trophy. He's like, oh, yeah, I can freehand that in 30 minutes. So he had it done in 30 minutes. Another hour later, boom, I got the tattoo done. But I kept it covered. So nobody knew until we got the shoot around the next day. So that shoot around the next day, we bring it in. We're playing Orlando. Uh, Coach Carlos like, bring it in. Are you guys ready? Uh, yeah, we're ready. Whatever. I said, hold up. Wait a second. I got something. So I ripped the bandage off my uh, tattoo and I flexed the bicep. I said, this is what I'm talking about right here, fellas. I believe. And uh, everybody's going to be like, oh, man. You can just hear everybody laughing like, oh, this guy's crazy. Let's do it. And then they kind of laughed it off. We brought it in. And um, and then, you know, we get through the season. You know, later on in that season, I think we're going through a little tough patch. Karan goes down. He gets hurt. Dirk goes, gets hurt the next day. Uh, not the next day, but the next couple of weeks. And so now we're struggling. I mean, we lost literally five or six games in a row. I remember that, um, yeah. It was just a tough time for us uh, because we knew what our expectations were. And so I, I had the uh, video manager, Mondrick, I said, man, do this for me. Make a copy of the uh, picture of the Larry O'Brien trophy and put it in everybody's locker. And so he puts it up in everybody's locker. Everybody comes in um, before practice. Everybody looks. You know, like, man, listen, I know we're going through a tough time right now, but don't forget what we set out to do. Like, the opportunity don't come around often. Dirk's going to get healthy. He's going to come back. Karan going to try to make it back. But when Dirk comes back, this is what we're playing for. And so, you know, from that moment on, I mean, we just continued to jail together. We continued to scrap. Dirk came back healthy. Uh, we kind of banded together. Um, but there were still doubts, you know, there were still doubts if, if you know, if we were the team, because again, we were missing our second lead scorer in Quran. He was having an all-star year uh, when he went down. So they were still trying to figure out who would, you know, kind of take his place, who would start at that position. And there was a revolving door at the shooting round, shoot, shooting guard position. So um, it, it just was, it was just some adversity that we had to deal with. But, uh, you know, fast forward to that Portland series, Portland was a tough matchup for us. I mean, they had guys that, that were long. They were athletic. They can guard Dirk. They had two or three multiple defenders that could guard them. Um, they had good, tough, strong forwards. Um, they had Brandon Roy, who was an all-star, but he was coming off the bench to match up with me. I mean, it was just – it was it was, it was was tough. And we went through some adversity in that series, but, uh, you know, we, we never wavered from our goal. And we never, we never doubted ourselves and what the mission was. So we got past them. Um, and then – you know, I know you want to probably talk about the Lakers series, but <laughs> you know, it was a road through the championship. We knew goes through the champion. And so um, we knew they weren't quite right all the way. And to put doubt in their mind, we'd have to win on their home floor. And we got that done. When we were able to go in and win game one, we're like, man, Jason Kidd. I mean, I remember his speech out the locker room. He said, man, don't be satisfied. Everybody here cheering and, you know, y'all all excited. He said, get greedy. Be greedy. Go get game two, and then we'll see how they – if they're really the champion who they say they are. 
Go get game two. I guarantee you'll put doubt in your mind. We come back game two. Man, again, another successful game. And I'm thinking like, man, we having all this success, and I really ain't had my game. I know I'm capable of having it. You know, J.J. had a great game. Um, Dirk was hooping. He was having a, a good series. So we get back home in game three, and I'm like, okay, we're at home now. We, we know we can win at home. We can beat them at home. We win game three. I was like, oh, God. And I still hadn't had a good game. I'm like, okay, enough is enough. This has to stop. Game four comes, man, and I'm telling you, I went to uh, right in Uptown. It was Mother's Day. I take my mom to the uh, House of Pancakes. I ordered the banana pancakes. It's something that I always do now. It's turned into a superstition. On Mother's <laughs> Day, I always get the cakes. But it was just something. It was an early game, too. And so it was just something about the game in the air. It was, it was a nice, sunny day. I mean, you remember everything when you have a game that was about to happen. And so we get to the arena. Man, my first shot, well, I already told you this early on in our conversation, my first shot was a three, wide open, nobody by me, all net. I said, uh-oh, just what I've been waiting on. So from there, man, it was just shot after shot. I mean, the game was in slow motion. The basket was big like an ocean, man. Everything I threw up a couple times, I couldn't even see the rim. I just let it fly. And, <laughs> yeah. and we knew to close them out, we just had to let them fly. But we knew we couldn't let them win because, you know, Kobe was over there. Like, it was just only a matter of time before you let him, you know, feel some success. And he was going to have that killer instinct in him. But, you know, they just didn't have it. They were worn down from winning two in a row. I'm going to three consecutive finals. I mean, they were just beat down, and, you know, we didn't let up. I mean, after I was hitting threes, Stoyakovich was hitting threes. JJ hit a couple. Dirk hit threes. I mean, it was just three after three after three, man. It was just an epic performance. And uh, it was one of those games that you never wanted the time to go off the clock. You wanted to keep playing that game for the rest of your life. Absolutely. I will never forget watching that game. Um, and just one little tidbit about it. So I'm actually an identical twin. My twin brother, uh, we both grew up in Dallas, but he's actually a huge Lakers fan. We're in our 30s now, but he grew up loving Shaq and just uh, uh, still to this day is a huge Lakers fan. And we were living in different cities at the time. I was living in Chicago. He was in D.C., but I knew he was watching it, and he just did. He just turned his phone off. He didn't want to hear from me at all. <laughs> so I just that was something that I'll never forget, and he'll never forget. And obviously, um, you were a huge part of that. So uh, thank you for sharing the the story behind that game. That was uh, like I said, that game one of '06 is one of my all time favorite Jason Terry games. This game four, the Mother's Day Massacre, absolutely is right up there as well. Yes, sir. Moment we'll never forget, man. Ever. <laughs> so I mean, that's fantastic. So, you know, sweep the defending champions, um, get by Oklahoma City in a competitive series, but still five games, definitely some memorable games in there as well. And then it's the rematch from, from 2006. You know, obviously that is the most legendary Mavs team of all time. You know, that, that was such a, a special time. Um, what was – your mentality uh, individually and from a, a team standpoint heading into that series? Well, my mentality going into the series was uh, I'm not this time, you know, not, not this time, not this team. We're not going to lose this opportunity this time. Like we were here before we know everything around it. We know what pressure feels like. We've been through all the adversity. 
not on my watch, not this time. I don't care what we have to do. We're going to win this series, period. There's no, there's no losing. Like, it's no losing. It's no sad song at the end of this story. So going into game one, we already knew what it was. I mean, this was the team that was not going to win one, two, three, four, five, six, seven championships. Like, they had a parade before the parade. Like, who does that? So we knew the hype about the big three and what they were assembled to do and accomplish, but we just knew it wasn't going to happen on our watch. And whatever we had to do, uh, we were going to do so. And so in game one, yeah, they were emotional. They came out. They played their best game of the series in game one. I mean, they, they played well, and you got to give them credit for it. But we knew in that particular game, one, we didn't shoot the ball well, and then, two, we didn't, we didn't execute our game plan. Get back in transition, load up, do not let them get easy baskets. Stick to the plan that Carlisle had set out for us that we would beat this team. I mean, we were designed to beat them because they couldn't match up with Dirk. I mean, that, that was a matchup like they were not going to put LeBron on them, because he he was too small, he couldn't he couldn't go not physically, but his height he wasn't tall enough. Uh, Chris Bosh too slow, he couldn't couldn't move laterally uh, against Dirk, especially if he had to show out on the screen and then get back to him. He couldn't do it. Uh, they didn't have anyone. Joel uh, Anthony, like no way. So then we looked at their bench. To a man on their bench, I'm gonna be honest with you. I played with Mike Bibby. Eddie House was one of my rivals in college. I'm mm-hmm. like, come on, man. I mean, what are we going to do here? Like, them two, I love Bibby to death, but at that point in his career, uh, his, his best years were behind him. So I was like, we're not going to be outdueled by them. Uh, they didn't have any other firepower off that bench. So our bench was better to a man. I mean, I can go down the line. Even the guys that didn't play, you could say Corey Brewer, Cardinal. I mean, those guys were better than the other guys they had on that bench. And so if we could get past their starting lineup, basically their big three, we knew we had a better team. So then we get to game two. Now, game two, there was some adversity. I mean, there, there, were, there was – yeah, there may have been some doubt creeping in, not within the team, but within the fan base and, you know, some of the naysayers that said, oh, this might be the team, uh, Miami, that is designed to win all these championships. And But in the fourth quarter, there was an instance. They hit a big three – Dwayne Wade and LeBron are exchanging air punches right in front of our bench, right as they walk to the timeout. And that moment for me was like, okay, enough is enough. Let's do what we set out to do and let's go handle our business. And from that point on in that series, even though they came back in one game three at home, obviously we know Dirk was sick. I didn't have a good game. Um, We knew we were going to win the series uh, because it was just, it was our time. Like our model was, um, the time is now. And when you've seen those shirts in that arena in game four, sitting all those blue shirts sitting in that arena, the 20,000-plus shirts, like that that reminded you. And the tattoo of the trophy on my arm, right bicep, that reminded you, like, this is our time. The time is now. And from game four on, uh, it, it, it was on. Like, we knew there was no surprises. There was nothing they could do. As long as we executed our game plan and made shots, uh, we would beat this team. And we would break them. Uh, LeBron at that particular time in his career, uh, mentally and physically, he was not the player that he is uh, or was the next year or years to come. Mm-hmm. Like he, 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 his jump shot, uh, he wasn't confident in it. Um, second of all, Dwayne Wade was really the go-to guy on that team. 
Like he was the guy that carried them. He was the champion. He had all the championship experience. Um, he was the guy. And so uh, we knew, like, let's put multiple defenders on LeBron. Let's make him shoot jump shots. Let's keep him off the free throw line. Like we had, you know, Sean Marion, Jason Kidd, uh, Deshaun Stevenson. We had three guys that we know we could put on him and a zone defense that would affect him and not allow him to be as effective as he normally would be. And so uh, once we seen his confidence kind of waver, uh, we knew that the, the, sh- the chink in the armor had happened and we, w- we would go in for the kill. The memory of, um, of you hitting that three over LeBron at the end of game five is just like ingrained in my memory. That's something I will absolutely never, ever forget. I still watch replays of it to this day just to kind of reminisce about what, how special of a moment that was. Yeah, I mean, it was a special moment, but it, it was a moment that I can honestly tell you for. Sometimes, you know, in life, things happen. But a lot of times in life, if you prepare for the moment, things are have, great things that happen for a reason. And I can honestly tell you how many times the night before in that same spot, I did that exact same move. And I had to make 10 in a row of that same move, not knowing that the next day that that moment would happen and it would be one of the biggest shots in my career. Um, but I had prepared for it. So when that moment happened, there was no nerves. Uh, there was no anxiety. There was, you've been here before, regardless of who's guarding you, you can get this shot off. And if you get it off, you just made 10 in a row. It's going to go in. And so that was my focus. That was my, my confidence in myself, but because I had put the work in and, you know, mentally I was just at, at on a whole nother level. I mean, Dirk had already motivated me, motivated me in game three in the media after that game. He was like, Jet hadn't showed up. He hasn't performed the way we know he's capable of. And that was all the motivation I needed. I mean, the media made it out as if this was a battle between me and LeBron, but this was something bigger. I mean, this was more of about, you know, the disappointment in 05, 06, uh, letting the city of Dallas down and then being able to come back and kind of um, vindicate, you know, what had been done to us before. I mean, because again, opportunities, like this never come around twice but for some reason god had gave it to us twice and for this time we were going to take advantage of it and you know that was just an epic shot man I, i've had tons of images pictures of that shot and then me <laughs> flying off but it's funny if if, if you're a, a millennial or you're a fan and you're a huge lebron fan the only memory and i can tell you right now i'm trending online today because today is the day in 2013 that he um, dunked on me to like rest in peace Jason Terry means so uh, they'll remember that moment but my last moment of me and LeBron's battles will be the shot that I hit over him forget that dunk <laughs> that's really funny I, w- I was debating about asking you about that dunk only because I did see it trending online earlier today so um, <laughs> thank you uh, that's yeah that was uh, I mean I think I- I'll take your shot over him any day so that that's that's how I look at it um, yes, sir. A great moment. <laughs> Definitely. So game six ends in Miami. You guys win the title. Do the whole post game thing. Uh, did you go to live that night? Yeah, I, I definitely went to live that night. Um, but again, and, and don't get me wrong. I'm the guy that was stir up and, and had a party bus waiting for us after games on the road. So we can go out and bond as a team. You know, that that was me. But in this particular moment, man, it was just something different. Like, you know, yeah, I was happy. I was with my wife. I was with the team. I went up on the stage. We cheered. We we, we popped bottles. Uh, there was the biggest bottle of champagne I ever seen in the back in the wheelbarrow and live. 
I've never seen anything like that before. Lil Wayne was in the house. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was just an epic night. But I mean, honestly, I, I didn't see the end of the night because I had. I told my wife, man, I'm, I'm, you know, man, I'm, I'm ready to go back to the room. I went back to the room early. Um, probably got back about two a.m. and I just got on my knees and prayed for about thirty minutes, man, because I just remember the journey to get to that point, and I had to get on my knees and pray and be thankful. Um, that we were able to realize our ultimate goal and win that championship. And so, yeah, that, that was an epic night, um, but I really didn't get to enjoy it like I wanted to. Um, but I knew what I had to do, and that was go back and give thanks um, because it definitely wouldn't have been possible uh, without God. Definitely. Yeah, that's uh, definitely a special night, and I'm glad you got to – enjoy it the way you want it. Obviously that's very important. So that, that's really cool to hear. So I know you had, you know, one more year in Dallas after that before, you know, going to Boston, Brooklyn, Houston, Milwaukee. And, um, you know, one, the only thing I wanted to ask you about your post Mavs career playing career is, well, I guess a couple of things. One, you got the opportunity to play for Jason Kidd as a coach twice um, you know, what was he like as a coach? And then what are your memories from the, the 2015 series against the Mavs when you were a member of the Rockets? Um, yeah. Well, first of all, I'm going to go on record right here. Y'all get this to you before nobody else would, would, uh, would get is that, you know, you, in your lifetime, you'll go back and there's things that you'll say, well, what if, right? And my, my only what if moment really is, you know, what if I would have just stay with the Mavs and finished it out, right? And finished it out when Dirk did. I mean, that that to me would be the only what if moment in my career mm-hmm. just because of you know, what the Mavs did for my career and what we had accomplished uh, together. Kind of rolled it out, weathered the storm. Uh, but for me at that particular time, financially, um, you know, it was a decision that my family and I had to make together. Uh, mm-hmm. But what I will tell you, I'm forever indebted uh, to the city of Dallas and Mark Cuban because I never because I did leave as a as a player right for my career but I never left home and this became my second home the community what I built with my foundation the relationships um, and and the relationship I have with Mark Cuban he always told me like yeah you, you know you you're leaving uh, but you're always going to be a, a man for life and that that meant everything to me uh, because I had his blessing uh, in that moment so uh, I had to get that out there on the record. And, you know, and just say that, you know, I'm forever indebted to him, you know, for, for keeping him and being a man of his word and, and allowing me to still be a part of this organization, you know, even though I did leave uh, in in free agency. So, um, but free agency was good. I mean, I got to go play for a story franchise and coach in the Boston Celtics. You know, I played with Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce, two fiercest competitors i ever been around, like Hall of Famers. Like, those are experiences that you would never take back. And that's why I say the what-if moment, but I, I I benefited from the relationships that I gained by leaving Dallas at that particular time and then playing for Jason Kidd twice as a coach. I mean, he's a big brother. I mean, he's a brother to me. He's a mentor. Mm-hmm. He's molded my coaching career now. Uh, I'm embarking on a coaching career uh, because of, you know, two people. One was Avery Johnson, or I could say Lou Olson as well, but Avery Johnson, how he mentored me, he made me realize that I was a coach at heart. Uh, and then being around Jason Kidd, him allowing me uh, to be in every coach's meeting as a player, 
while I played in Milwaukee. Um, that, that was huge for me and my development and my growth uh, in figuring out my purpose in life and who I wanted to be uh, with my life after basketball. So he's had that impact on my life. Um, you know, playing, um, playing in Houston alongside a young superstar, being the veteran that Kevin Garnett was to me and, uh, and that Jerry Stackhouse and Daryl Armstrong was to me when I was in Dallas, when I was in Boston, when I was in Brooklyn. Um, being that guy, being that voice, uh, sitting alongside James Harden and Dwight Howard, and then being thrust in the lineup, right? When I was like the sixth man, Beverly goes down. I'm now the starting point guard on a team that goes to the Western Conference Finals and competes against the new crown dynasty in um, the Golden State Warriors. I mean, that was a tremendous accomplishment at that point in my career. Uh, because nobody picked that Rockets team to to do, you know, what we did um, that year. But, I mean, we accomplished some good things. And, you know, to watch the growth and development of a future MVP in James Harden, to forge a relationship with him and help him along his journey, I mean, that, that was a tremendous milestone in my career. Uh, to leave Houston and go to Milwaukee and then watch a young, another young MVP in Giannis Antetokounmpo and know that, I had a part in his development. I mean, that, that to me are, are some uh, achievements in my career that you won't see in my bio on Wikipedia. You know, those are things that are kind of self-serving and, and, and achieve um, monumental uh, for me uh, because I know when I, le- when I left the game of basketball as a player, I made a mark and I made an impact on the next generation. And, and that's something that Dirk said in his, you know, his last, um, speech was like your job as a professional athlete as an NBA player is when you leave the game leave it better than you know you you had it when you came in and I thought I was able to do that uh, the latter part of my career of impacting some of those players that have continued to go on to do great things and they're not finished yet but they will be Hall of Famers so um, you know that was that was kind of my journey on on towards the end. Um, did I want to have a victory tour and, and go around every city I played in? Uh, that's really not me. I felt like mm-hmm. every game was a victory for me, whether I was in the game or cheering my teammates on from the bench. So, uh, no, nah, that, that, that wasn't it. Would I have liked to retire the Mavs? No doubt about it. I mean, because the, the Maverick organization meant so much to me, the city of Dallas. Uh, but, you know, hopefully one day that'll happen and uh, we'll see fit. But I'll always be a man for life. The way you described it sounds like a really special way to to end your career. You know, touch making an impact on so many um, dynamic players in the league. It's got to be a pretty pretty good feeling for you. Um, so now I know you're involved with the legends and you're involved with um, coaching. Like you said, you're primarily are you, are you coaching your daughters and, and their and their teams? Uh, well, I'm not coaching my daughters right now. Um, but I, I, I was a varsity head coach um, this year at North Dallas Adventist Academy. Uh, and in our first season, in my first season as coach, uh, we won the state championship. Um, so that was a tremendous accomplishment for me. Um, at the same time, I was the assistant GM with the Legends this year. Uh, now I'm serving as a consultant um, to the organization and to, uh, to the Legends. Um, so um, as I embark now on my coaching career, uh, it's probably going to be um, I want to say it may is possibly at the college level. I won't rule out the professional level uh, because I've had several interviews in the last year and a half um, and been a finalist for uh, several assistant positions. 
Um, but my passion is coaching. I mean, and mm-hmm. it's not about coaching coaches and old. It's about impacting the lives of others and helping them become better uh, men, women, husband, wives, uh, you know, and so and better people. Um, that 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 is my sole focus uh, and my purpose in life as I embark on my post playing career. So um, I'm just excited about what the future holds for me. And, and it's, it all has to do with serving people. I mean, that has always been my mission and purpose in life. Well, that's that's fantastic to hear. And um, I think I can speak for all of Mavs fans and all Jason Terry fans that we hope, you know, this next phase of, of your career and coaching goes well for you. And we, we wish you nothing but the best. I've got one last question for you. And uh, thank you so much for your time today, Jet. This has been a thrill for me as a fan. And I can't wait to share this episode. But what I'm looking at right now, um, okay, here it is. I'm looking at the roster for the 2010-2011 Dallas Mavericks. 18 names, including you, that played for the Mavs during the 2010-2011 season. A few of them didn't finish the season with the team, but I wanted to see how many of them you can name. For 2010-2011, how many names? 17. Yeah, me, Dirk. Uh, Karan Butler, Sean Marion, Tyson Tandler, Brendan Haywood, J.J. Barea, um, Brian Cardinal, uh, Brian Cardinal, uh, Corey Brewer. Uh-oh, let me see. I got to nine. Jason Kidd. Uh, that's 10. And we got more players than that. Yeah. And- <laughs> Uh, hold on. I got you coming. I got you. Hey, who are the rookies on that team? Let me see here. Rookies, rookies, rookies. Dang, man. I only got to 11. <laughs> yeah, I only got to 11. Hold on one second. Let me figure it out. Oh, man. Yeah, I'm stumped. Okay. See, where so, I get to? I got to 11. I got you at 10, but maybe I missed one. But I, I can name the ones you hold missed. On. Hold on, let me let me see. Hold on, I can. I got it. I got it. Hold on, <laughs> two seconds to think about it. I know I got it. You, oh, they didn't finish the season. Some of so them like didn't Steve finish the season. Novak. Yeah. Right, Steve Novak, Novak yep. came, man. <laughs> Pager, how can I forget Pager? Pager. Yep, Pager's another one. Oh man, my big brother, Big Yon, he's still playing. Yep. Yeah. He had him. Shit, Roddy wasn't on that team. Oh, no, he was. Yeah, Roddy was there. He was hurt. Roddy was hurt. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And that got me where I'm at, about 14? I got you at 14, yeah, so. Four more. Wow. Two guys did not finish the season with the team. (laughs) One rookie. Um, Sean Williams was on that team? No, no, he he was the next season. I remember him. You know what? I don't know how I could forget my guy, Dojo. Yep. Dominique Jones. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Three more. Only one of them actually was on the playoff roster. The other two left before the season ended. Man, we had a foreign kid from uh, – I think he might have played with Cleveland at one point. He did, yeah. Like Pavlovich or something like yep, that? Yep, exactly. Sasha Pavlovich, yep. Uh, got it. And oh, then just you know who else? Big fella. Big fella. I don't know why he didn't finish or he wasn't on the playoff roster, but he played for the Charlotte. Uh, he played in Charlotte. Uh, tall, foreign kid. He's about seven feet. Oh, man. 
Alexis Ajinka. Yep. Alexis and just one last yeah. one. You mentioned him earlier this episode. Um, and uh, I could tell you if you're ready to throw in the towel. <laughs> I said Deshaun Stevenson. I had him. Oh, you did? Okay, then I might I might might have oh, missed you I, saying that. So that, that was yeah, the yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. The, my, see, I didn't have J. Kidd at first uh, in my first five, but D. Stevens, <laughs> I had one there. But, yeah. So let me see if I can remember again. Hold on. Um, I'll just go down the list. Me, Turk. Jay Kidd, Sean Marion, Karan Butler, Tyson Chandler, uh, Corey Brewer, Deshaun Stevenson, Dominic Jones, Brendan Haywood, Yan Mahimi, uh, Novak, <laughs> uh, Pavlovic, Paige yep. uh Roddy Bubois, Alexis Ajinka, uh, dang, did I miss somebody again? I think I got everybody. You might have missed uh, JJ. Oh, then, man. How you missed it? <laughs> I'm the second time around. Brian, Brian Cardinal. Brian Cardinal. And then uh, Jason Kidd. I'm not sure if you said the second time around, but then that's it. Yeah. Man, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow, we had 18 players on the roster. That's crazy. That, yeah, dur- at some point during the time that season, they all played uh, a regular season game at least. So, um, well, this has been quite a thrill for me, and uh, I really appreciate you giving me this time today, Jet. And uh, like I said, um, I wish you nothing but the best in the uh, in the in the rest of your career, and I hope your your coaching your coaching search goes well for you. Okay, thank you so much. I appreciate it.